Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. Welcome everyone to this episode of Sarcoma Insight. Today's episode will be focused on our sarcoma stories, uh, journey from diagnosis to present. We have a lovely guest with us, Dr. Janet Panic. I pronounced that correctly? Pretty close. Panock. Panock. All right. Dr. Panock. <laughs> All right. On the previous sarcoma uh, story segment, we've done these episodes and these segments dedicated to uh, sarcoma survivors and families, highlighting the unique experiences that people go through along with uh, their journey uh, in total and then the passions that arise as a result. We've had previous stories from Dr. Kurt Weiss. We've had uh, Brandy Benson on as well as Brandy Benson and her mother. Uh, and we've highlighted and started to highlight the importance of family and the role that family plays in the process of someone who's diagnosed with sarcoma. And for this episode, we'll have a mother who has challenged her passion into taking care of helping others. Dr. Panock is a program management specialist uh, and is part of the Supportive Oncology Department of Medicine in the General Internal Medicine and Geriatrics Department at Indiana University. That's a mouthful, right? isn't it? <laughs> it is a mouthful. Um, she is a PhD and does a lot of things, uh, a lot that I probably would not be able to accurate, accurately describe, but uh, a lot of it is focused on, um, and a lot of her research uh, and time and dedication is focused on patients uh, with sarcoma uh, and also time with the uh, with the osteosarcoma decision aid. Uh, and so we would love for, for you to, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm ecstatic that you're uh, on the show and uh, I'll let you sort of finish the introduction by saying anything I might've missed about the impressive things you've accomplished. Uh, and then we could talk a little bit about how we even, how we met and then a little bit about you. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I would clarify that there are impressive things that I've done with the community, right? So the, the work that I've done has all been informed by patients and parents, caregivers, family members, um, orthopedic oncologists, um, all of the healthcare professionals, uh, you know, who work with patients and families who are diagnosed with osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma bone cancer. And so the tool that I developed, the osteosarcoma decision aid was, um, with all of the uh, input from all these different um, stakeholders uh, in the lives of families diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Any titles? Did I miss any of your other titles? No, program management specialist. Yep, I work for the Walther Center for Supportive Oncology at the IU School of Medicine. You got it. The Walters. It's very interesting uh, how we uh, met because we met recently uh, in person, at least. I've heard about you Um uh, but uh, we met at the uh, MSTS, which is a tumor society meeting, which was in Banff, Alberta recently. Um, I think you're someone who's very passionate. And so I think part of what we're going to talk about now is how you go from, you know, being, you know, a surgeon, a sarcoma surgeon to ending up being at a conference, attending it, giving a lot of valuable uh, input uh, throughout the process. Uh, so I know you're in Indiana now. Did you grow up in Indiana as well? Are you from Indiana? I did. Yeah, I'm from Indiana and I've lived in Washington, D.C. I worked for the nonprofit, the Amputee Coalition for a little while. And um, and, and then I came home during COVID and then I, and I stayed. So all my grown kids and grandchildren, everybody's right here in Indiana too. Grandchildren. Yeah. Wow. Grand, grandson in college. Oh my goodness. I, I, I'm, I old. I'm old. 
<laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think that's. I don't know if that's what it means. Uh, you know, there are a lot of young. You know, I'm I'm here in uh, Mississippi, and there are a lot of there are a lot of young, uh, very young grand grandparents. Sure. So, yeah. and and so part of what inspired you to get at least introduced you into the world of sarcoma was a diagnosis to a family member of yours. Could you tell us about how that was and the period leading up to it uh, prior to getting the diagnosis? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, it was in 2007, and my middle daughter was then 12 years old. We'd been hiking out in the woods, and um, she was kind of limping a little bit, and I noticed a bump on her knee. And I said, oh, you know, what happened? And she said, oh, I just tripped over a tree root or something. It's no big deal. But I kind of had a funny feeling about it. Took her to the family doctor the next day, who fortunately had diagnosed osteosarcoma in patients previously. So she knew what a bone wow. tumor would feel like by pressing on it. And so she actually asked for permission to bring other staff members um, into, the, um, into the patient's room so that they could touch it and feel what a bone tumor felt like. Um, we didn't, of course, know what type of bone tumor it was. We went to have an x-ray and then had a biopsy a couple of days later uh, when it was identified as osteosarcoma. But at that time, you know, she was 12. I was um, a homeschooling mom. I was working as an artist. I knew nothing about um, medicine. I knew nothing about specialists. I'm not even sure I knew what an orthopedic oncologist was at that time. Um, so just like many families, we were completely thrown into this world. Um, and so her tumor was on left distal femur, as it often is. You know, she, her, her tumor was around the knee area, which is the most common location for osteosarcoma. Um, and she wasn't given any choices or options for surgery at the time. Her surgeon uh, decided to do a limb salvage surgery for her. I, I remember that she asked about amputation and um, her surgeon said, well, we, we don't do that anymore. You know, we just, we, we try to save the leg. And so we're going to do um, a metal implant and endoprosthesis. And I, again, I didn't have any background in medicine or communicating with specialists, and I didn't know what questions to ask. And I just said, okay. You know, I talked to some friends who were in medicine, and they said, you know, he's the guy. Just do whatever he says to do. So we did. She had a limb salvage surgery. And um, she had no metastases. Her tumor was localized, so that was good. She had good response to the chemo, which was also good. But she also struggled with the surgery. Um, you know, immediately post-op, she had, you know, what they thought was drop foot. Um, she had chronic pain, really limited mobility. The implant itself broke. Um, and so she had to have a major revision one year after her first surgery. And oh. then she went on to have many surgeries after that. Okay. If you don't mind, uh, I usually get very excited um, when people are telling the stories um, because there's so many key points that you mentioned. You touched on a couple of things just now. One is the type of implant you would use for a young person. The second uh, are the options for for surgery or not, whether you do limb salvage versus more radical surgery like an amputation. The third that I um, you also touched on is she had no met metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. um, what was that workup period first for you before we go into the implants? So was she, because for our listeners generally to understand the process, so she had to get a CT scan and 
probably yeah a bone scan sure, or bone okay. scan she never had a pet scan bone scan, bone scan. Um, okay mm -hmm. all right and those all came out clear uh, everything was localized to her femur but it was the distal end of the femur is that correct correct yeah no, by the knee yeah okay and then when we're talking options of limb salvage versus not for surgeries like this we have not had an episode on that we will have one uh coming up to discuss and debate those different options and what we'll probably come back to on this episode now that you've been through the process what your thought would have been you know in terms of surgical decision making for that and obviously it's much different with the experience you now have versus then then in terms of the implant so it sounds like she had a growing implant she did yes okay so because uh out in my guess this is me estimating so because she was 12 she was still growing it's around the knee the knee is a for our listeners the area of the um, though you have many growth plates around the body a lot of it happens through the knee on the on femur side and then on the tibial side. Whenever you have the surgery and remove that area, then often we'll need to help the implant grow so that the other side, because the normal side, the non the side without sarcoma will continue to grow. And we want to have the limbs, both legs of similar length as close as possible. All right. So yeah, she did have the growing implant on her femur. And so, but what happened over time was that femur was actually um, lengthened more than what her um, non-sarcoma, her sound side was. And so, and the tibia really didn't grow in her case. So she had a pretty short tibia and a really long femur, which threw her joints off, you know, yeah. so that was a complication in addition to you know, sort of the, the chronic pain she was already experiencing um, with the with the implant and, you know, the limited mobility. She often was in a wheelchair or used arm, you know, arm crutches. Um, yeah. So she's 12 during all of this. For our patients with osteosarcoma, they're getting chemotherapy, they're getting the surgery and more chemotherapy. How is that for her life at this time? Did you you know, she was being homeschooled. Are you still schooling her? Is she completely not doing anything? What is her life like or what was her life like at that time? Yeah. So um, because she was homeschooled, you know, families would come to visit her with her frequently. And at, at times of the day that, um, you know, most kids would be in school. So it was pretty rich still in that sense, but she did suffer from all the side effects associated with um, chemotherapy, you know, including nausea and weight loss and uh, fatigue and all those kinds of things. So she was really limited in that respect. But, you know, her perspective on it was that, you know, the osteosarcoma was just, um, you know, her, her, her genes had gone awry. She was never, you know, angry or upset. Um, she was just waiting for treatment to be over. I think the more upsetting thing was not having good mobility and having so much pain. I don't know if you remember this with osteosarcomas uh, is the degree of necrosis. Do you remember what that was for her? Yeah, it was over 90%. She had over 90%. a good rate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. And so for our listeners, so over 90% of the necrosis is, is what we deem to be a very uh, excellent response to chemotherapy. Uh, that means the chemotherapy is really working for that particular strain of osteosarcoma. 
How was the so? Sounds from what I'm what I'm hearing, she had one surgery. She's supposed to have a lengthening. So when I mean, you have to have the lengthening, depending on the implant, you might have multiple implants and require multiple surgeries. And then, um, how was it for her getting through that? You're saying that she was having some complications, and that it wasn't necessarily working out as anticipated. Because now she had, my guess is, it's completed all her chemotherapy and was now being just followed for her cancer, but then her function wasn't where she would have liked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really frustrating for her. She would, you know, work with physical therapists, but she never had the flexion or the extension that she needed um, to really weight bear or walk well. At one point in all this, do you start to gather information for yourself and start to you know, head towards the direction that you are in now? Well, um, you know, for me, I was more of an advocate for her. She was sort of one of those old soul young people, and she would do a lot of the research and, you know, she would, you know, she would kind of handle that. I didn't really do much of that other than being on, you know, the support groups, you know, back in 2007, we didn't have the Facebook support groups. Those came much later. And so back then we had the ACOR list, the American Cancer Online Resources. And that was a great place, but it just had a small number of patients. The great part was there were a lot of um, doctors on that list and they would listen and they would offer tips and advice and things like that. And that's how I met a lot of my physician colleagues now was back on that ACOR list. Now they won't join the Facebook groups. Um, in, in many cases, the, their institutions won't allow them to join, which is understandable. But um, but we do have a lot more expert patients on the Facebook group. So, you know, I would just uh, listen to other people's stories. And that's kind of how I got involved and started to find that there were other people like my daughter who were also having limited mobility with limb salvage. But she decided very early that she had really wanted an amputation. Um, and I remember her asking that the first time. But every year she would revisit with her surgeon and ask, you know, can, can I just amputate? I would really just like an amputation. And they would say, no, we can, we can still save the leg. We can do one more surgery. So she would say yes, you know, uh, to one more surgery each time thinking it would just be one more. And that went on for about, that went on for 11 years before she went back to her first surgeon and had the amputation that she wanted. So at that point, she was 23 years old when she had her above knee amputation. Um, and then how is she doing now? If I ask? Oh, now she's doing great. She's five years post amputation. And it was a little more complicated than just an above knee. You know, if you do an amputation after a limb salvage, um, the amputation is much higher to get above the, the metal implant. And so she and her surgeon talked about different ways to get a longer femur. And together, they decided that a tibia turnoplasty would be the best option for her. Um, she might have chosen a rotationplasty, but at that point, her foot and ankle had deteriorated um, and were no longer, that was no longer a good option for her. Um, yeah. So, um, so, hmm? Thank you so much. So you've introduced some wonderful terms that I think we're definitely going to come back to uh, on future episodes. You know, the tibial turnoplasty. A rotation plasty. These are options uh, that allow us to get like a, lo a longer amputation limb for a tibial turnup, and then for rotation plasty, 
allowing us to get a longer limb and essentially using the uh, ankle or the heel as the new knee uh, uh, and the foot as the new tibia. Uh, and so it's something that we'll definitely have to come back to. Well, you know, and some people wonder why. Well, why do you need a longer limb? And the reason is that you have better mobility with a prosthesis if you have a longer limb. If you have a little short limb, it's a lot harder to ambulate and walk around than if your limb is longer. So that's why we would like to have a longer limb for that. Yeah, absolutely. And then when, uh, what year or in this time did you then go for your PhD? Right. So it was probably about three or four years after her diagnosis that I started seeing this theme coming up with patients and families that they're struggling with. Um, most of the time, people are being asked to engage in making the medical decision with their surgeon. Um, and so they would struggle with having enough information, you know, wanting to get more patient stories about what this is like over time. Um, you know, if they choose a rotation plasty, for example, what would that look like five years or 10 years or 15 years down the road, not just immediately post-op, but what would their child's life be like? And I, so I kept hearing these stories and I realized that um, we needed to improve communication in this area. And so uh, I went back to college. I had a master's degree in communication, but I didn't have any background in medicine. And so I went back to school and started a PhD in health communication with a special interest in patient provider communication. And my goal when I started in 2013 was to create this decision aid that would help people to make uh, the surgical decision so that they understood all of the risks and the benefits of all the options and the potential long-term outcomes and so on. And yeah, it took a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, just fantastic. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of that in sarcoma because often the amount of information that is required and uh, to make any sort of decision uh, comfortably sometimes requires a little bit more time than a, the allotted in a patient visit. Uh, it's and also a very you... emotional time for families, you know, when, and that's usually when they receive the information about a decision that needs to be made is right at diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? It's hard yeah. to pay attention to anything at that point. Absolutely. And and I think that's, you know, part of what, um, you know, I, I think many sarcoma surgeons uh, always consider this and always try to find the proper timing or um, uh, ways to deliver the message and messages because uh, it's very important uh, that uh, everything is being understood, but also trying to let the proper time for people to understand what's going on. Uh, that was a big impetus uh, for uh, for Elise and I to do this podcast. Uh, we found that we, we needed more time to explain things and people needed more time to hear about it and listen. Um, and, and I think, and I'm, I'm very hopeful uh, that this is uh, helping helping a lot of people. So how was your, how did the, the PhD go? So it sounds like the, the, your major project was a decision aid. Did you get to spend time watching interactions between physicians and patients during that time? Or was that, uh, yeah. did they evolve uh, for sarcoma specifically? Um, well, um, yes. I mean, I had been involved as an advocate from the beginning 
um, sometimes helping patients formulate questions uh, because that's one of the first things people say, you know, just like the issue that I had, I don't know what questions to ask, right? So what questions do I have to ask? Um, so yeah, I did get involved right away, but I also was involved in other areas of medical decision-making, right? In preparation for the osteosarcoma decision aid, I worked on other decision aids for other health conditions so that I learned, you know, really how to design, develop, and test a tool, you know, this comprehensive. You know, this is a pretty high stakes decision. This isn't a, um, should I take this medication or that medication kind of decision aid? This is one that's going to impact, you know, since it's primarily pediatric, you know, a child's life for their entire lifetime. Um, so it's a heavy decision for a parent um, to have to make and to try to decide when to involve their child. But yeah, so I, I started working on that early. That was the topic of my dissertation. I interviewed 20 different families of different ages who chose different types of surgeries for their um, for the osteosarcoma. And we talked a lot about like what the decision was like um, for them, you know, and how it played out over time. So yeah. that really helped to inform the beginning of the decision aid. Fantastic. And I would like to, um, before we finish this episode, to spend a little time talking about the decision aid. Just go back to a couple of the questions that we definitely want to touch on. Um, you've talked about being an advocate for your daughter throughout this process and then sort of leading you to this. You mentioned that she was a, a middle daughter. Is that correct? That's um, right. How would, what was the impact, not only on you, but on, on sort of the rest of the family? Sounds like this was an 11, 12-year process um, yeah. getting to this point. Yeah. Yeah, well, my older daughter is 12 years older than her. And so she would have been, I guess, 24 at the time and was just starting her teaching career. So for her, it was a, you know, a huge um, kind of disruption on her vision for what, you know, her siblings' lives would be like, you know. Uh, she was right there with us in the hospital and, um, you know, would would help with little brother, little brother. My, my son was eight at the time that she was diagnosed, so... Um, you know, he was also being homeschooled. So major life interruption to have a, a sibling and mom in the hospital when that was, you know, how he spent his days um, in terms of education and um, socializing with other families and things like that. So, yeah, just, yeah, everything stops. Uh, I think definitely fantastic. I think the, the support of family throughout that time period, uh, always very important. Uh, how did you see, because Although you felt you, you identified that there was an area or at least a bridge that needed to be built between the interaction between patients and physicians, how did you see the role of the not only the physicians but the entire treatment team for sarcoma diagnosis? How did that interface? How how was that interaction for you and your family? Well, I mean, you know, like many families, we saw our oncologist far more frequently than we saw the orthopedic oncologist or the surgeon. You know, we saw the oncologist every time we were admitted, you know, before and after. So um, that person was in our lives regularly, as were, you know, the nursing staff and so on. But the orthopedic oncologist, we saw very rarely. We saw at diagnosis and one other time, and that was it. Um but the interesting thing was, was that was the thing that impacted our lives the most, especially over time, was the orthopedic decision. Um, 
and, and the way that that played out. And it's just so, it's very uncertain, you know, we just don't know, you know, how, how people are going to do with any of the orthopedic decisions. So, so for us, it was pretty limited on the orthopedic side and very concentrated on the oncology side. And then while, while we're sort of on that, were there any sort of immediate areas of improvement that you, that you saw then, but also as you've now been in, in this field, in this space for so long, or different areas that you feel like we could overall improve in how we interact with patients, educate patients, interface with patients? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, again, that orthopedic decision is so important over time. And, you know, we can talk about the different surgical options there are, but we don't talk much about what that really means. Like, if you choose rotation plasty or amputation, you will have a prosthetist in your life for your whole life. So if you're considering that, you know, there should be, I think, more of a multidisciplinary approach that would include prosthetists and physical therapists and the surgeon, you know, some, some way that, you know, patients, because they don't, you know, I work with patients in decision support now, um, and they don't even know what a prosthetist is, you know, it's, it's, it's not enough to offer the decision, but it's to understand what life would look like after the decision is made. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's amazing. And I, and I believe, you know, a lot of institutions have always, all, are always working to institute most, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, I think the role definitely of increasing that and making sure the prosthetists are involved early in the decision-making process is definitely something to keep in mind. I think there are less prosthetists overall uh, than I think other medical professionals. Uh, so that might play a role in that, but I, I, I definitely do agree with you, but it would be adding two more people that the family would have to speak to. Um, and, uh, but worthwhile getting the full picture, um, beforehand. Um, when, when we talk about the deceased decision aid that you've talked about, you've mentioned it a couple of times, I spent some time on the website and for our listeners, we have the website link as part of the episode description. One, have you had people using the decision aid? Uh, and then two, what is the best way uh, for people to use the decision aid uh, through at least the website? Well, I mean, decision aids are not intended to be used um, as a sole source of information, right? It was designed um, to help people get the information that they need to have conversations with their orthopedic oncologists about what their surgical options are. Um, a decision aid is a pretty structured tool I followed the international patient decision aid standards for the development of it to include, you know, all of the things that they think should be um, should be included in a decision aid. Um, and it's a lot. It includes, you know, the risks, the benefits, um, the potential, um, you know, complications or issues that might arise. It includes patient stories. Um, there's a whole lot of resources in there um, because we had. Um, I had patients and families and surgeons involved this, with this from the beginning, and it had been in the works for many years. They knew about it coming out. So I don't feel like I had to do much legwork to get buy-in from orthopedic oncologists, um, which was an incredible gift to getting this implemented um, in the patient population. When I was at the 
MSTS meeting in Banff, for example, you know, I was chatting with some of the surgeons there who were telling me how they were using it with their patients and how it really helped them because they realized they can't give them all of that information in one sitting, particularly at a highly emotional time, like at diagnosis. So, you know, they appreciated having this tool that people can go look at. And, and the best thing is, is it's essentially a website. So if people start to feel overwhelmed with information, and, and that's the thing that patients would tell me the most when they're receiving information from their surgeon at diagnosis, it's like, I couldn't take it anymore. It was overwhelming. It was just, it was too much. I didn't understand the terminology. I was scared. You know, I, I, my child had cancer. And so if they feel overwhelmed when they're looking at the website, they can just turn it off. They can step away and they can come back to it whenever they're ready. So that's the great part about it is that it's, you know, been so, you know, vetted by, by surgeons and used by patients. I think one of the surprises for me in the implementation side is um, on, on the patient side, they don't call it a decision aid, they call it a decision guide. And I see that referenced over and over again. But whenever somebody comes on to, you know, the Facebook group and says, oh, my child has been diagnosed with osteosarcoma, I have to make this decision. It doesn't take long before somebody from the community, they don't even tag me. They, somebody from the community puts the decision aid on the, on the Facebook group and says, look at, look at the decision aid. This will, this will help you. Yeah. And so, yeah. So it's really being moved forward on the patient facing side in the support groups. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, I think meeting you was sort of my first foray into the decision aid. And I, I think it's very um, user-friendly. Uh, I think it's one through four uh, on the site and it goes through sort of the decision process and the options, you know, with different links and resources. If you do want to deep dive into a particular option or not with specific pros and cons. So I think this is very, very excellent. Um, and if, you know, if anyone would uh, like to take the time or has a recent diagnosis, I think they're definitely encouraged to um, go through it. Um yeah, I also love the uh, sample questions or potential questions that you might ask. There's a list of questions, and those were generated by both patients and doctors um, for questions to ask your doctor. And actually, it's um, it hasn't had any revisions yet, but I'm starting to collect um, recommendations for uh, revisions. Um, and I do have a couple more questions that some physicians have asked me to include for patients to consider. And then um, there's a section on there that's called practice statements. And those are value statements for people to sort of try on to see how they feel um, about the different surgical options. And right now that section is being made, um, going to be made interactive. So there'll be a slider bar where people can move the slider back and forth for their preference. And when it's done, they'll be able to print it out and they can take it to their doctor. So their doctor has some sense of what their, what their preferences are, but you know, with a high stakes decision like this, it's so um, it's so um, reliant on the information that they have at the moment that the, that what's important to them really might change. And that's right. not something that we often think about in medicine or in like in in ethics. We don't think that your values are intrinsic to who you are. We think that they're not going to change. But if you get more information that changes, you know, how you think about the future or the future for your child, then what you think is important might actually shift and change. Your preference might be, might change. Everybody's preference at the beginning is to save the leg. 
everybody's, every parent that walks in that door, every kid that has osteosarcoma, they want to save the leg. And the surgeons want to save the leg. That's how they're trained. But what is that like over time, right? What's that like 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years? So that's probably the population I work with the most is people who've had limb salvage and now they're 20, 25, 30 years later and they're making the decision for um, an amputation. Well, definitely fantastic. We've touched on a lot of wonderful things today. We've, we've touched on different surgical options, um, definitely limb salvage versus uh, the other options, your amputation your turnoplasty, your rotation plasty, as well as just the overall experience of your family and you and what you know inspired you to do what you do and come up with the decision aid. Um, I, one thing I would like to uh, just add, you mentioned the Facebook support groups. Are there any particular ones that you'd recommend uh, for the listeners? Well, there are three for osteosarcoma. I think there's three. Um, one is public and the others are private. Um, I will say that if people are wanting to, to learn about osteosarcoma, it's pretty much the same people in all the groups. Um, the private groups were spinoffs from the public because people were posting things and concerns and because they were public, well, they were public. Anybody could see them. Um, and so there, sometimes, you know, they're posting for a family member or then they'll go to the private groups. Um, but those, I will say that those groups, I know, you know, sometimes people say, oh, social media, you know, it's not accurate. It's not, but these groups are highly vetted by expert patients. The moderators are, are very knowledgeable and you won't find any, you know, silver water or magic mushrooms or any of that nonsense on these sites. I'm the moderator for one of the moderators for the rotation plasty group. So, um, so I know what it's like to moderate a group and it, it it's hard work. So, um, but all of those groups are good. You know, in the back of that, um, the last section of the osteosarcoma decision aid, um, there's a list of resources at the back and it has all the Facebook groups on there. I actually just checked the, um, the stats on the decision aid today. It has been viewed in 57 different countries. Yeah, that's pretty, it was released on May 1st of this year. So that's what, six months-ish ago? Yeah, this is fantastic. I, I definitely, my anticipation is that that will continue to grow um, as more and more people get to know about it and, and how beneficial it is um, for patients. All right. Well, as we come to a close to an episode like this, usually we like to uh, ask if there are any words that you would uh, like to share for any patients or families uh, who are currently with a diagnosis and going through various stages of their treatment. I think the words of advice I would have for patients and families is it's kind of the same for the surgeons too. And that is the need for um, peer support, um, the need to connect with other families who have made this decision. Um, I just can't overestimate how important that it has been for families as they're thinking about making um, a, a surgical decision to talk to other people who've made that decision. And, um, and it would be great if surgeons could help them um, with the names of patients who would be willing to talk to, talk to them because sometimes it's hard to find uh, people, especially locally. So if it's their surgeon who is connecting with them, they can actually meet with somebody who has rotation plasty and see what that's like as opposed to just talking to them or Zooming with them. Yes, making things feel a little more real. 
uh, in terms of understanding the big yeah. picture. With the understanding that everybody really does have a unique experience in this in this world, they are they are all so different. Every I you know I I stopped my interviews at twenty thinking I had saturation, but it really wasn't. Every story is unique. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's. I mean, I think that's fantastic uh, that you mentioned that. That is exactly how we always close our episodes. Um, because I think overall, it's very important to note that each case is unique. Uh, and then the treatment is really dependent on discussion with your team, team of doctors and physicians. Again, if you'd like more information, do not hesitate to check out the links on this episode description. There's going to be uh, a link uh, to the sarcoma decision aid, um, as well as uh, a link to Dr. Panik's LinkedIn. All right. Uh, and then uh, for us, uh, you know, the next episode will be discussing giant cell tumors of bone. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you for being on as our guest. Uh, you have been uh, very patient with me as we went back and forth and making uh, some room on your busy schedule to fit us in for an episode. So I'm very thankful. I'm very happy. And I think our listeners are going to love hearing, hearing you speak about your experience. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Sarcoma Insight.